In this second service, we will be considering Baptist Catechism questions 98 uh, through 99. Question 98 asks, to whom is baptism to be administered? Answer, baptism is to be administered to all those who actually profess repentance towards God, faith in Christ, and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ, and to none other. Question 99. Are the infants of such as are professing believers to be baptized? Answer. The infants of such as are professing believers are not to be baptized because there is neither command nor example in the Holy Scriptures or certain consequence from them to baptize such. I'll read now from Acts 2:36 through 41. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Let all the house of Israel know, therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is Peter's preaching, isn't it? Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words, He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received His word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This now, the reading of God's holy word, may he add his blessing to the teaching of the faith now. As I'm sure you know, the Baptist Catechism and the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, the catechism used by many who are Reformed and Presbyterian or Reformed and Paedo-Baptist, they are very, very similar. And the same thing could be said of our Confession of Faith, the, the London Baptist Confession of Faith and the Westminster Confession of Faith are, are very similar documents. And the similarities are very important, and I would say they are also very encouraging. They remind us that we have a lot in common with our Reformed Presbyterian brothers and sisters. And this should encourage Christian unity. It should encourage love. It should encourage also respect. Now, Obviously, there are differences between these standards. The primary difference is our answer to the question, to whom is baptism to be administered, stated in a different way, who is it that is to be baptized? Our, question, our answer to that question is indeed different from the answer given by the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Now, on the one hand, I do not want to overemphasize the importance of this question. Indeed, there are other doctrines more foundational to the faith than the doctrine of baptism. To be a Christian, one must hold to orthodox views regarding God, Scripture, the fall of man into sin, and salvation through faith in Christ. These doctrines are foundational to the faith. They carry much greater weight, therefore, than questions about baptism. If I were to say it another way, I would say that I do believe that it is possible for Christians to differ over the question of who should be baptized and to regard one another as true and dear brothers and sisters in Christ. 
our unity being rooted in Christ and in our agreement on the foundational doctrines that I've just mentioned. I hope you would agree with me about all of that. There is something to be said for the approach of majoring on the majors and minoring on the minors. There is something to be said for that approach. But on the other hand, I do not think it is wise to dismiss this question about baptism and to whom it is to be administered as if it were unimportant. Baptism is very important, brothers and sisters, for Christ has ordained it. He has commanded that disciples be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, baptism is connected to other things, to other doctrines. It it certainly is. You've probably heard me say in the past that all theology hangs together. The, The meaning of that little phrase is that errors made in one area will lead to other errors in other areas. Errors in foundational doctrines, like the doctrines of God, Scripture, man, sin, and salvation in Christ, are catastrophic. Uh, They disturb the very foundation of the faith. And errors made in less foundational points of doctrine, though they might not disturb the foundation of the faith, will have a ripple effect on other doctrines too. Our understanding of baptism will impact in some way our understanding of the nature of the church. It will will impact our understanding of the nature of the new covenant itself. Who are members of the new covenant? Is the new covenant breakable? These are a few related questions that come to mind. Uh, Questions related to, in fact, the doctrine of baptism. Now, question 95 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, To whom is baptism to be administered? So it's the same question. The answer is different, though. Baptism is not to be administered to any that are out of the visible church. So it is not for the world, uh, the Westminster Shorter says, and they are right about that. It is not to be administered to any that are outside the visible church till they profess their faith in Christ and obedience to Him. Amen. And then it goes on to say, But the infants of such as are members of the visible church are to be baptized. And we disagree with that. Here, question 98 of the Baptist Catechism again. To whom is baptism to be administered? Answer. I'll see if I could read it correctly this time. Baptism is to be administered to all those who actually profess repentance towards God, faith in, and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ, and to none other. And I would say, it is our conviction That this is the clear teaching of the Holy Scriptures. This is the clear teaching of the New Testament. Firstly, we should remember what the New Testament says that baptism signifies. We considered the symbolism of baptism last week with the help of Baptist Catechism 97. What is baptism? Answer. Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament instituted by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized a sign. A sign of what? What does it signify? of His fellowship with Him, that is, of His fellowship with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, of His being engrafted into Him, of remissions of sins, and of His giving up Himself unto God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. If it is true that baptism signifies union with Christ in His death and resurrection, new birth, cleansing from sin, and a resolve to walk in this new way of life, then it is most reasonable to think that, the, that this sign is for those of whom these things are true. Baptism is for those who have been united to Christ by faith, 
who have been cleansed by His blood, who have died to their old self and raised to new life. Secondly, we should remember what we say through the waters of baptism. It is through baptism that we profess our faith. It is through baptism that we say Jesus is Lord. Yes, we say that Jesus is Lord with our lips, but that profession is to be made according to the New Testament. Through baptism, to be baptized is to say, I believe. To be baptized is to say, I have been forgiven. To be baptized is to say, I have died to my old self and raised to a newness of life. Through baptism, we make a profession and a commitment. Baptism is for those of whom this is true. Thirdly, we should remember what God says to us in baptism. And I think this is such a beautiful thing to consider and to emphasize. God speaks to us through baptism. In baptism, God's name is placed on His people. Think of that. We are to be baptized in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the name of the triune God is placed upon His people in baptism. In baptism, God says to the one baptized... Through Christ you are forgiven and adopted as my own. Again, I say baptism is for those of whom this is true. In fact, a careful study of the New Testament Scriptures reveals that it is only those who make a credible profession of repentance and faith who are to be baptized. Perhaps the most important text is the one we call the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to His disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth is given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The them in this text refers back to the disciples who have been made. These are those who have heard the gospel and have professed faith in Christ and have turned from their sins. Furthermore, when baptisms are described in the New Testament, we see that it is those who believe who are baptized. Sometimes those who believe in infant baptism, will point to the household baptisms found in the book of Acts. Have you heard of these household baptisms? There's a couple of stories in the book of Acts where the gospel comes, and it is not only the one person who who hears the gospel explicitly who is said to be baptized, but the whole household with him. Sometimes those who believe in infant baptism will say, well, here here is evidence for infant baptism. There must have been infants in these households. And two things can be said in response to this. One, it is not wise to build doctrines on the foundation of assumptions and speculations. These passages nowhere say that there were infants in these households or young children who were baptized. It is assumed that there must have been And so that is the first thing that can be said. Two, most of these passages where households are mentioned suggest that those in these households heard the word and believed something infants and small children cannot do. So you may go especially to Acts 11, 13 through 18 and 16, 29 through 32 to see examples of this. The implication there is that those in the household heard the gospel along with the um, the primary subject and believed along with that one, and were baptized. I I think it is very safe to say that not one text in the New Testament clearly teaches us to baptize infants or small children. And and I think the best of the Reformed and Paedo-Baptist theologians will in fact admit this. I think it was Warfield who famously admitted that there is nothing in the New Testament that clearly teaches uh, that infants are to be baptized. There is no 
explicit command, no verse that we can go to that teaches infant baptism. But please hear me say this, we are not biblicists. We are not biblicists. We reject the idea that in order for something to be true, there must be a verse that says it. We are not biblicists. We agree that some doctrines are to be believed because they are taught by way of necessary or certain consequence. This means that the whole of what the Bible says on a subject is to be taken into consideration when formulating our doctrines. The most, the most famous example of this is the doctrine of the Trinity. The Bible in some places teaches that God is one. In other places, the Bible teaches that God is three. Not a single verse can be found in the whole Bible that teaches that God is three in one. But when all is carefully considered, when all of the... the the information is gathered from Genesis through to the end of the book of Revelation, we are moved by the testimony of Holy Scripture to confidently assert that God is triune. The one God is triune. You understand this is formulating a doctrine based upon this principle of necessary or certain consequence. There's no one verse that teaches it, but we must believe this because of all that the Scriptures have to say. Never does the New Testament command infant baptism, only the baptism of those who profess faith and repentance. Never does the New Testament describe infant baptism, only the baptism of those who profess faith and repentance. But here is the question, do the Scriptures require us to believe in infant baptism by way of necessary or certain consequence? In other words, does a theological reading of the Scripture require us to baptize the children of believers? Stated one more way, is infant baptism taught in a similar way to how the Trinity is taught in the Scriptures? No one verse can be pointed to that says, here it is. But when the whole Bible is considered on the subject, are we bound to believe that babies are to be baptized? Now, if we are to be consistent in our interpretation of the Scriptures, we must be open to the possibility, for we are not biblicists. But when all is considered, the answer is no. I want you to listen carefully to Baptist Catechism 99 again, and afterwards I'll explain uh, why I am emphasizing this today. Question 99. Are the infants of such as are professing believers to be baptized? Answer. The infants of such as are professing believers are not to be baptized. And then we find the word because. Because there is neither command nor example in the Holy Scriptures. A third thing is then mentioned or certain consequence from them to baptize such. So, why are we to baptize those who make a credible profession of repentance and faith in Christ only, and not the infants of those who make such a profession? One, the Scriptures nowhere command infant baptism. Two, the Scriptures nowhere describe infant baptism as if it were an example to us. And three, a careful, theological, covenantal, redemptive, historical study of the totality of the Scriptures, Old Testament and New, does not necessitate the practice of infant baptism. To the contrary, a careful examination of the Old Testament Scriptures agrees with the teaching of the New Testament that baptism is for those who profess faith in Christ alone. Those familiar with the debate between Reformed paedo-baptists, paedo means child, and Reformed credo-baptists, credo refers to a profession of faith. Now, those familiar with this debate between paedo-baptists and credo-baptists will know that the Reformed paedo-baptists 
do not argue for their practice of infant baptism from the New Testament, but from the Old. Did you hear this? How do we disagree over this, you see? I mean, that's kind of the question. These men are, are such good students of Holy Scripture. How, how do they hold to this and not see that it's believers who are to be baptized only and not children? And, and you know, we're, we're tempted to, to go to the New Testament only and to argue against their doctrine from the New Testament, but we, we, we don't really land our punches when we do that because they don't go to the New Testament to argue for their doctrine. They go to the Old. They argue like this. The sign of circumcision was applied to infants under the old Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants. The sign of circumcision was applied to infants under the old Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants. Two, the old covenant, they say, was a particular external administration of the covenant of grace. And the new covenant is a particular external administration of the covenant of grace. Three, Given that the sign of admission into the Old Covenant, circumcision, was applied to the infants of covenant members, it must necessarily be that the sign of admission into the New Covenant, baptism, be applied to the infants of covenant members, namely of those who believe and who are part of God's visible church. Do you, are you at least seeing their, their rationale? I, want, I think I've fairly stated their position here. Uh, they make a tight connection between circumcision and baptism, and say that if it was true that circumcision was to be given to infants under the old, it must be then that, that baptism is to be given to infants under the new. They make that tight connection. And so you can see that the Reformed Paedo-Baptists do not typically argue for their position by pointing to this verse or that in the New Testament. I don't think they ever really do that with some exceptions. They argue from the old by reasoning in the way that I've just described. And with all due respect to our Reformed Paedo-Baptist brethren, many of whom we esteem very, very highly, we reject this reasoning. One, we do not agree that the Old Covenant was a particular external administration of the covenant of grace. Hang in with me here for just a moment. Be patient. This argument needs to be made, okay? We do not agree with point number two uh, that I mentioned earlier, that the Old Covenant was a particular external administration of the covenant of grace. The Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants were mixed covenants. They were covenants of works that could be broken. And they were broken, brothers and sisters. But they carried within them the promises, prophecies, types, and shadows that pointed forward to Christ, His kingdom, and the covenant that He mediates, the new covenant which is the covenant of grace. It is the new covenant that is the covenant of grace, not the old. And so the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants were, were mixed covenants. They were covenants of works that could be broken, and yet the gospel was contained within them. Not because they were the covenant of grace, but because they pointed forward to the covenant of grace with Christ as mediator. So we reject that, that premise, and it's a key premise for their entire argument. The Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants anticipated and pointed forward to the covenant of grace, but they were not the covenant of grace, properly speaking, for they did not have Christ as head and mediator. We could talk about this for hours, I think, and we have before in other studies, by the way. For now, let me say that our particular articulation of covenant theology, which differs from the typical Paedo-Baptist articulation of that doctrine, is in, in report... Um, in, in important respects, leaves no room for the argument from infant circumcision to infant baptism that the Pado baptists are so fond of making. 
Do circumcision and baptism share something in common? Do circumcision and baptism share something in common? Answer, yes. What do they share in common? They are both signs of their respective covenants, old and new. But does it necessarily follow that because one was applied to infants, then the other must be applied to infants also? The two covenants, though certainly interrelated, they differ substantially from each other. And so we would say, no, it does not necessarily follow. It should be no surprise to us, given the difference between these covenants, that the signs of the covenant also differ substantially. Two, and this point deserves much more time and attention than we could give to it today. While we agree that it is appropriate to argue from necessary consequence in matters of theology, in many matters of theology, it is not an appropriate thing to do with, pos- with the positive laws which God added through the various covenants that He entered into with man, which are sacramental in nature. Are you following with me here? Is it, is it proper to argue from necessity of con- necessary consequence in some or in many matters of theology? Yes, it is. We may do this with the doctrine of God. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if some passages say that He is one and others say that He is three, then we may bring all that together and formulate our doctrine of the Trinity. We may do that with things that are moral in nature as well. We, we can deduce something, certain things from moral principles stated clearly elsewhere. But I am saying that this is not an appropriate thing to do with the positive laws which God added to the various covenants that He entered into with man, which are sacramental in nature. The signs that God attached to the various covenants He made with man, trees, the rainbow, circumcision, and baptism, are arbitrary. They are arbitrary. What do I mean by this? I mean they are simply based on God's choice. In other words, he could, have chosen, he could have chosen other signs to attach to these covenants. We cannot necessarily reason, therefore, from one to the other to figure out what they are and how they are to be applied. With positive laws, we are completely dependent on God's express commandment. And this is why we look to Christ, His words, and to the New Testament to know what baptism is. We look to Christ, His express commandments, to know what baptism is and how baptism is to be applied. We look to Christ and to the New Testament to know what baptism signifies and who it is to be given to. Again, we are not biblicists. We acknowledge the validity of the interpretive principle of necessary consequence, but we deny that it is appropriate to use this principle with positive laws and sacramental things, for it is impossible to reason from one sign to the other. Now, I suppose we are right to expect that signs will be attached to covenants, for this is God's established way. God relates to His creatures by way of covenant, and He always attaches signs to these covenants. And of course, we should expect that the sign of the covenant will agree in its symbolism with the substance of that covenant, with the given covenant. Does that make sense to you? God makes covenants with man, and He gives signs. He attaches signs to those covenants. And we should expect that the two things agree that the sign it actually reveals something true about the substance of that covenant. It makes perfect sense that the sign of the covenant of works made with Adam in the garden would be two trees representing two choices. Doesn't that make perfect sense? Here's a covenant. Obey and you will be blessed. Disobey and you will be cursed. 
And so here are two trees that symbolize these two possible choices. And it makes sense that the sign given to Abraham in the covenant that he made with him and all his physical descendants would be applied to the male reproductive organ. That it would involve the removal of something, thus symbolizing the threat of being cut off from the covenant, a covenant of works, through disobedience. And that it would be bloody, signifying the cross work of Christ who would be cut off for his people. This Christ was promised to Abraham and his children. He is the promised seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham and David. Circumcision, just think of it, brothers and sisters, think of the sign. It fit the old Abrahamic covenant. And it made perfect sense that it was to be applied to all of the male children of Abraham at eight days old, irrespective of whether or not they had faith. For the old Abrahamic covenant was made with them by virtue of their physical birth. For what it's worth, it seems to me that circumcision was an excellent choice for the sign of the old Abrahamic covenant. For it agreed with the substance of that covenant in every way. But the sign of circumcision does not fit the substance of the new covenant, does it? It does not fit the substance of the new covenant, which is the covenant of grace. Think of it. The new covenant is not made with an ethnic group, is it? The new covenant is not made with an ethnic group. There is so much teaching in the New Testament that emphasizes this. The dividing wall of hostility has been broken down between Jews and Gentiles. This gospel of the kingdom... This gospel of the new covenant is to go to all the peoples of the earth. It is not made with an ethnic group. It is made with God's elect. It is made with all who are born again and believe in Christ. It is those who have faith, the faith of Abraham, not the DNA of Abraham, who are members of the new covenant. And there is no threat of being cut off from the new covenant. All who are true members of it will be preserved. And Christ, the seed of Abraham and David, has come. In other words... He has fulfilled the sign of circumcision. He has been born to Abraham and David through the Virgin Mary. He was cut off for us on the cross. He shed His blood to atone for sin. For all these reasons, circumcision has been fulfilled and taken away. And baptism has been given as the sign of the new covenant instead. And baptism, friends, agrees with the substance of the new covenant, and thus serves as a fitting sign. Baptism signifies many things. Union with Christ in His death and resurrection. The washing away of our sin. Death to our old self and new birth. And this sign is to be given to those of whom these things are true. The point that I am trying to make succinctly is that our Reformed and Paedo-Baptist brethren error when they look to the sign of the Old Covenant in an attempt to figure out to whom the sign of the New Covenant is to be applied. Why would we look to the Old Covenant and to the instructions given concerning circumcision to know to whom the New Covenant sign, baptism, is to be given to? These are positive laws. The only way we can know is by paying attention to the commands that were given in association with the giving of the sign. How did Abraham know that he was to give the sign of circumcision to all of his male descendants at eight days old? Because God said so. He could not reason from a previous sign. He could not reason from the trees in the garden or the rainbow established uh, with, with 
all of creation in the days of Noah, to figure out that circumcision was to be applied to the male children at eight days old. You cannot, you cannot deduce that from necessary consequence. You must be dependent upon the commandment of God only. And in the same way, why would we look at baptism? Why would we look at baptism, which is, as our catechism says before in question 97, an ordinance of the New Testament instituted by Jesus Christ, why would we look back to circumcision to try to figure out who baptism is to be given to? It's a positive law. It's a sacramental thing. The only way to know is to pay attention to our lawgiver, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to ask, what has He said? And what has He said? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What does the New Testament command in other places? The baptism of believers alone. What does baptism signify? We should consider that. This sign is to be given to those of whom these things is true. What does the New Testament describe? The baptism of believers alone. You see, that is the point that I'm attempting to make. We cannot reason from the one sign to the other, circumcision to baptism, to know how the thing is to be applied, to, to know the answer to the question, to whom is baptism to be administered, to Christ and the New Testament we must go, for there this positive law is revealed. To whom is baptism to be administered? Baptism is to be administered to all those who actually profess repentance towards God, faith and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ and to none other. Are the infants of such as are professing believers to be baptized? The infants of such as are professing believers are not to be baptized because there is one, neither command, nor is there two, example in the Holy Scriptures, or three, certain consequence from them to baptize such. Brothers and sisters, baptism is a precious thing. It is a holy thing. Like the Lord's Supper, we must be very careful to fence the baptismal, as it were, and to be sure that we give this sign only to those who have professed faith and repentance in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it is a precious thing, I do pray to God, that He would convert our children, that He would bring them to make a credible profession of faith, and that we and our children would be greatly blessed by the sign of baptism, that they would partake of this sign with understanding and with faith in their hearts, and that they would remember their baptism forever and that they would be reassured of the fact that they have been united to Christ. Their sins have been washed away, and they have been raised with Him to walk in a newness of life.